And every week, it's the same thing every week. Every week, in case you haven't noticed the pattern, here's the pattern every single week. We're going to go to the Word of God, and we're going to find truth. Then we're going to do our best to understand that truth, so we can then apply that truth appropriately. And that's very, very important, because I don't know if you know this or not, but Darlene and I, we, we hosted TBN for probably 20 years, maybe. And we, I remember this one particular guest had been involved in, the, in a cult. Now, not the occult with satanic stuff, but a cult. A cult is something that's really kind of close to Christianity. It's just not quite there. They'll use Bible verses. They'll do this and that. And he said something I never forgot. He said, you know where these cults get their members from? From people who are churchgoers who don't know the Bible. And I thought, wow. So it's a good thing for us to understand the Word of God so we can apply it properly. And so when we know the Word of God, understand it, and we apply it, James says when we become doers of the Word, then there's this transforming power that takes place in our life. But it never happens if there's not application. So we're always, every week, you hear me say this all the time, we're pushing towards application. I'm applying it to my life, you're applying it to yours, and that's what transforms us. And so we're looking at this, this power this, of the gospel and of salvation, all, that, all that's contained in it. And if you don't know me well, because I've been talking about how we're pure and holy and, and righteous and all this and that, you may think that I'm, I'm soft on sin. That you go, wow, that preacher just says, hey, God don't care, just go sin it up and have a wonderful time. That's not what I'm saying, because it does matter how we live. But I want you to know that we are saved, purified, holy, righteous, clean. See, my belief is, is that if we can really understand who we are and what we are in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ, then we'll want to live like that. It really is predominantly true. Your life is shaping itself up and moving in the direction of your dominant thought of how you see yourself. Some of you have incredible capabilities, and you don't see yourself as having any. And so your life isn't moving forward as if you have incredible capabilities because you don't think you do. And so as you see yourself, as you understand yourself, it helps direct your life and set the course of your life. And so we want to see ourselves as God sees us. And so God sees us pure and holy, and that ought to say, hey, I now see myself as the righteousness of God in Christ, which ought to inspire me to live righteously. So I'm not trying to inspire you to sin. But Paul ran into this all the time. Some of them I just crack up at. He's preaching on the grace of God. He's preaching that the grace of God is bigger than your sin because people could, I'm sure they were coming to Paul and saying, God can't forgive me. I've done way too many things. I've been far too bad. And so Paul would tell them, where sin has abounded, grace will abound all the more. Grace will be bigger than your sin. I don't care. Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. But the grace of God was bigger than a sin. So then the people, because you can take truth and bring it to a wrong conclusion, and it's weird that people actually thought this. You can read this in the New Testament. Paul had to deal with this. So people said, okay, let me get this straight, Paul. So you're saying that grace is really good, right? Oh, absolutely. And so the more grace, the better. Absolutely. And you said, as we get a big pile of sin, grace will always pile up bigger than sin. Yeah. Okay. So doesn't it make sense then, Paul, that we ought to go sin like wild? Because we go sin like wild and amass a mountain of sin, then we'll get this this mountain of grace that's bigger than the mountain of sin. You had to think, Paul had to say, oh my goodness. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? This is not an excuse to sin. So uh, Satan will always put something in there to try to say, oh, well, well, well Tracy said you're, you're pure and holy, so just go do whatever. Well, you are pure and holy if you're in Christ, but I didn't add go do whatever. Then we ought to live as people who are pure and holy. So we're going to look at 
I want to recap quickly a couple verses from last week, but I don't want to re-preach last week's message. But in Romans 1, 16 and 17, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. The gospel has power in it. It, it's, it brings salvation to everyone who what? Believes. Now, we like to put all kinds of criteria on that. So we say, well, you might have believed, but did you come forward to an altar and kneel? I mean, I'm not talking altar and stand. Did you come to altar and kneel? And by the way, when you came to an altar, did you, did you confess every sin you ever committed? And on top of that, did you ugly cry? I mean, you had, to, you had to come to the altar, kneel, confess every sin, ugly cry. If you did that, then you might be saved. But you know the Bible doesn't put all these criteria on it. You'll, you'll read this over and over and over. Now, you can get upset about, well, well, we need to tell people this and that. Well, why don't you go tell that to Peter and to Jesus and to Paul and to John, who, who didn't say these things. He said, it's available to everyone who believes. Now, I understand that belief is more than just like, Hey, do you believe in Jesus? Let me think for a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think there's Jesus. No, I understand that belief is putting our full weight and trust in something, but there was no other criteria past that. I'm going to put my full weight, my full trust in the Lord Jesus. And so salvation is available to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Now, that's good news for us because I'm going to guess that probably everyone in this room, maybe not, but most likely just about everyone in this room is a Gentile, a non-Jew. You were not born a Jew. And so if you weren't born a Jew, thank God that God included us Gentiles in it. And the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile for, the God, for in the gospel the righteousness of whom? The righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of man, not the righteousness of you being a good rule keeper, not the righteousness of the law, but a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In other words, beginning to end, start to finish, I mean, here's what we'd say, the whole kit and caboodle, I don't even know what that word is or how, what, where it came from, but the whole enchilada, it's all faith, it's all belief in God, and the righteous will live by faith. Then we looked at uh, Jesus as one of Jesus' right-hand men in 1 John 1, 7 and 9. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. As near as I can tell from studying that out, it means we have fellowship with each other's believers and we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from, what's the next word? All sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from how much sin? All sin. All sin. So did it purify you from all the sin you committed up to this point? Did it purify you from the sin you committed on your drive to church today? I know you all didn't, but sometimes spouses can argue and kids can get, you can get a little testy and... And uh, so that's forgiven. Let me ask you this question. Should Jesus tarry? Did, did the blood of Jesus purify you from sin you'll commit five years from now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You go, I don't know. Yeah. Yes, the answer is yes. All. All sin. So the blood of Jesus purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all what? Unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. So I'm just telling you what God said. I know sometimes we get aggravated. Well, you should put some qualifications on this. God didn't. I don't feel like I ought to qualify something God didn't. And you'll find this written over and over and over and over. If I was just take one of these verses out when there's qualifiers on 20 others, I would say that, that's bad preaching. 
But when I look at this and say, wow, it's, it's, it's always says by faith or by belief. Now, we did spend some time last week, so I want to challenge you. We looked at verse 9. Verse 9 is misunderstood by most people. Now, it's not that I'm a wonderful Bible teacher, but we just kept it in context. And so if you were not here last week, if you did not listen to that, or if you go, I don't remember what he said last week. Again, I know, I tell you this with regularity, don't tell me that, you know, don't pop my fantasy that you all just slaved over everything I talked about last week. But you can go to our website, and you can get, you can download or listen to it on our website. Our website is incrossroads, like Indiana, incrossroads.org, and you can find last week's message, and you can click on it. And if you say, I just don't know if I could endure the whole thing, okay, I've helped you out. You can go to 17 minutes and 20 seconds, and you can start listening there at 1720, and you can listen to about 2530, so it's about eight minutes where we really deal with what this verse really, really means when we keep it in context. Now, it won't be anything weird once you, once you listen here. You go, okay, I see it does mean what we're talking about as we look at it in context. So, very important. And you say, well, I know what that means. Probably not. Y- you might, but probably not. So just take the wild chance that it might be worth five, six, seven minutes of your life to actually Listen to that and make sure you understand verse 9 because it's a very critical component in our salvation, and under, or at least in understanding our salvation. So today, I'm talking about the gospel of forgiveness. Now, I don't even really like that title because I don't want to sound like there's 17 gospels out there, but this is the gospel of forgiveness. But the gospel contains a really incredible element called forgiveness. And it's really essential we understand forgiveness. And so we're going we're gonna to do a little studying today. Now, I know some of you, if it gets a little too studious, your eyes glaze over. You know, I've seen it. Uh, I understand. Uh, some of you are going, oh my goodness, I can handle three verses, but if we go to four, I'm just, that's just too much. Well, Paul told Timothy, we need to study. We need to be diligent. We need to rightly divide or handle the word of God. So I want to encourage you. It's not going to be like super studious, because I know some of you say, I'm just going to check out right now, because I already feel like it's going to be too It's not going to be super studious, but I've watched, oh, we got a blessing going on today. Every day, almost always, these ceiling fans are on. They're not on today. Because here's what happens. I'm gospel truth. I see this, I'll, I'll see your eyes glaze over, and then for some reason, you get drawn hypnotically to the ceiling fan. And I'll be preaching, and you'll just be watching that ceiling fan. Now, I know you went somewhere else. I mean, you might be in the Bahamas, or I don't know where you're at. But that ceiling fan just kind of mesmerized, kind of hypnotic. And, and I'll watch people watch the ceiling fan for a couple minutes, and then they'll come back, and they'll go, I don't know where we're at, but I'll just you know, act like I'm paying attention. So pay attention. Stay focused, uh, because I can promise you, the Word of God has much more great information, much more blessing, much more power than the ceiling fan. Okay? So stay, stay focused. If you, if you start getting off a little, just go like this, okay? You know, don't get up and do jumping jacks, but, you know, do something. You know, you can wake yourself up. So we're going to go to Hebrews 10. Now, I'll tell you, when I look at Hebrews 10, I want to teach every verse of Hebrews 10 today. I don't want to do it in a three-part series. I want to teach every verse today. And there's two or three of you who would like for me to. Yeah, exactly. But the rest of you are going... Please do not encourage him. Some of you, as soon as they said, ooh, let's go for it, you went, no. <laughs> no. Okay, so I'm not going to teach every verse, but we're going to leapfrog through here, and we're at least going to deal with some of the things that are tough. And your assignment this week, your assignment is to thoughtfully and slowly read Hebrews 10. Okay, read Hebrews It might take you three or four minutes. You weren't looking at the ceiling fan 
were you? Okay, just checking. I thought, thought I saw your head go up. Okay. Uh, so, anyway, uh, Hebrews 10 is your, is your assignment for the week. So, Hebrews 10, verse 1, the law is only a what? Shadow. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. You say, what in the world does that mean? Let's say you're six years old. You've asked mom and dad for a bicycle for your birthday. And so your birthday comes, and they ask you to come out. Come on outside. They're taking you over to the garage. But what they do is they have the bike hidden around the corner, but the way the sunlight is hitting it is shining the shadow of a bicycle that you can see. You can't see the bike, but you can see the shadow. Are you excited? Yeah. Are you pumped up? Yes. Because you don't care about the shadow. You're just excited about what the shadow's showing you, what it's revealing to you. And so once you walk around the corner and you see your dream bike, you're all excited about it, and you don't play with the shadow, do you? You don't like lie down on the ground, try to pedal the shadow or something. You just, you know, you, you love the, the bike. When it gets dirty, you don't wash the shadow. You, you want the bike. Well, here, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is the reality the old covenant of the law is just a shadow of what is coming. For this reason, the law, the shadow, can never... Did you hear that word? For this reason, it can never... The shadow can never... By the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year... And I'll just add this to it, and for those who go, oh, you're not supposed to add to the Bible, it, it's okay, this is okay... For these same sacrifices that were done year after year, after year after year, decade after decade, century after century, could never, never, never. They could never make perfect those who draw near to worship. So the people of God are drawing near to worship, but they can't ever get perfect. And they just ask a logical question. Otherwise, if it could have made them perfect, they would have quit offering them, Correct? I mean, if there was a sacrifice that made you perfect, then there's no better than perfect. You're done. But it says, otherwise they would have been stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt what? Guilty for their sins. This is a big deal to God. It's not my message today, but it's a little side note. You were not built for guilt. You weren't built for guilt. They, they would never have felt guilty you're supposed to, when, you are, when your sins are forgiven and you're made perfect in God, you are not to feel guilty. That's what the scriptures say. Had that sacrifice made them perfect, they would not have felt guilty. You don't feel guilty about a sin that you haven't committed. And if God's forgotten and removed it, it as if it never happened, then you can be free from guilt and free from shame. Satan wants you in guilt because guilt just bogs you down. You never really do what God wants you to do because you always say to yourself, there's no way I could do that because I've done Whatever. So you can't play that game. You're not built for guilt. You would have been cleansed once for all when no longer felt guilty for your sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder. See, the Jewish people had this incredibly joyful and sad celebration every year, and it was called the Day of Atonement. And every year they would get together, and the, the sacrifices would be made, the rituals would be done, and all the sins of the nation were cleansed and purged and covered for the next year. Now, that's very exciting, very joyful, very beautiful, very wonderful, except as you walked away, 
you'd be saying to yourself, I'm going to be right back here next year. I'm going to be right back here next year. And I'm going to be back the next year. And the next year. And the next year. Because it can never make perfect those. They can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. So their annual reminders of sin is impossible. You're catching the words here, aren't you? Never. Impossible. Is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. I am shocked with regularity. You know, it's usually a couple times a year. Somebody somewhere will talk to me about how we got to come back under the law. I mean, it is Jesus. Yes, absolutely. But we have to celebrate this and do that and do this and do that. That is not taught in the New Testament. I just want you to know it's not taught in the Scripture. What's taught is never, no, no longer. And then we pick up on Jesus here. Now, if we read the whole thing, we'd see this little passage where Jesus said, Sacrifice and burnt offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And then we pick up on it. Here's Jesus. Then he, Jesus, said, Here I am. I've come to do your will, the will of the Father. He set aside the first, which is the covenant of the law. He set aside the covenant of the law to establish the second. We saw that in, in the Last Supper. He said, this is a cup of a new covenant in my blood. Now, some people say, well, he can't change an old covenant. Yes, he can. There were multiple covenants in the Bible, and we moved through multiple covenants. And the very first covenant, actually, is the closest to what we have in Jesus, is a covenant made with Abraham. Abraham was considered righteous by faith. And so we've come back to that, but we've really dealt with the sin issue. And, by the way, a covenant ends when someone dies. And they've used this, the marriage covenant before. When a spouse dies, that covenant has come to an end. Guess what? The person who made the covenant dies. Jesus. He dies. The good news is he rises again. And the, the great thing about this is that covenant that he made was a new covenant established in his blood. And so he, being God, has the right to do that. So let's read on. I don't know, it's exciting to me. And by that will, the will of the Father, we have been made what? Holy. Now, there's a Bible verse that says this, let God be true and every man a liar. Are you a Christian today? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Then I want you to know, God says you've been made holy. And you say, well, not me. Okay. Are you calling God a liar? Well, I mean, I wouldn't call God a liar. Well, are you a believer? Yeah, I'm a believer. Well, then, it says you've been made holy. You've been made holy because you're so good. You're so wonderful. You're such a rule keeper. You're such a, you know. No, you've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Now, that's a cool phrase, once for all, that we just read by and neglect. But once for all means just that, once and for all. Once and for all time, once and for all people. It's done. Jesus has done it. So let's read on. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. Oh, I went too far. Let me go back up. It says, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. But when this priest, the priest they're talking about is Jesus. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, he just repeated what he just said, for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Now, the high priests and the priests and the subsets of priests, there were were, uh, whole staffs of them. They had had, uh, uh, 
work schedules and everything because they never got done. I mean, they were always hustling around. You know, I got this sacrifice to do. I got this thing. What a horrible job the priests had. People think, oh, man, I would like to be an Old Testament priest. Really? You got to read what they do. Hey, you got some skin lesion? I'll come over and check it out. That's what a priest did. You got mold on your wall? I'm going to come out and figure out what it's about. There's all kinds of crazy stuff they did. So they're always working. They were always working. They were always working. This commercial's not out anymore, but those of you that are my age and older will remember Dunkin' Donuts used to have a commercial that said, you're always making the donuts. And so they were always making the donuts. They were always working, 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 working. But you know, this high priest, when he made his sacrifice, once and for all, what did he do? He sat down. He's done. It's over. He's finished it. It's finished. He sat down at his right hand, and since then he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Then verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect, what? Forever. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now you think that'd be enough, but then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember how often? No more. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, we kind of get that, that we don't offer the blood of bulls and goats and all that. But you and I are notorious for wanting to pay for our sins. Well, yeah, I know what it said, but man, I really, I really did bad the other day. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel guilty, shameful, and awful for, that was like a three-dayer. I'm going to feel bad for like three days. And then, oh my goodness, I, I committed a horrible, awful, incredibly wicked sin. That, one, that one's six months, man. I mean, I'm going to beat myself up, look down at my shoes. I'm not going to do anything for God. How could I? I'm a worthy good for nothing. And so we're, we're sacrificing. We're trying to make sacrifice. And you know what? If you ever pause, because I know we're all intelligent thinking people here, but if you ever pause for a second and would ever think at this level, So what are you saying? Jesus, your sacrifice wasn't quite good enough. But my guilt and shame and beating myself up on top of your sacrifice, now that may may fix the thing. No, Jesus was enough. Your guilt, your shame, your ridicule of yourself, you you deciding not to do nothing for God because God can't. That's that's exactly where Satan wants you. But I'm going to remind you again, you're not built for guilt. You're built for freedom. And so, God, man, this is good for... Not necessarily my preaching, the word of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. You're wasting your time making additional sacrifices. Now verse 26 is an interesting one. We've been dealing with these lately, just accidentally. We looked at, probably three weeks ago, this Bible verse that we often look at wrong, where it says, that my thoughts aren't your thoughts and my ways aren't your ways. But when we looked at it in context, do you remember what we discovered? He was talking to wicked and unrighteous people. So we learned in context, oh, I've seen more truth from this. And last week we looked at that verse 9 I was telling you about. And it really in context is not what we thought it would say. And today we see this one and you've heard it preached. You probably felt guilty about it. And... We didn't keep it in context, so we're going we're gonna to make sure we have it in context today. Verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. 
So we hear that and we go, oh my goodness, I, I, I may be in trouble. So I'm going to let you in on something. Every one of you, myself included, every one of us has sinned willfully. Every one of us has sinned deliberately. Well, I don't know. Okay, I'll tell you. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Even if it's something like, oh, man, I got this juicy little tidbit of gossip. I think I'm going to share it with somebody. And then you go, you feel that, and you've, you've experienced it. It's Holy Spirit. Like, you don't need to share that. Yeah, you're right. But I'm going to anyway. Oh, man. Okay. And when you're done, you say, oh, I shouldn't have shared that. I know that was wrong. And I, you, you know what you just did? You sinned willfully. You sinned deliberately. And so people say, well, then, then I'm going to hell. Well, that's because we don't pay attention. Paul told Timothy, rightly divide this word. Here's how we read it. This is not correct, but here's how we read it. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, there's no sacrifice for sins left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's not what it says. It says, if you deliberately or willfully keep on sinning after you've received the knowledge of the truth, there's nothing to look forward to except the judgment of God. By the way, it's interesting as you read through the scriptures, you'll find, you know who the enemies of God are? This is, you, this is scriptural. The enemies of God are those who reject Jesus. And you may go, oh, I have an atheist who is my neighbor who's the sweetest, kindest person you will ever meet. And they're, they're nicer and better than most Christians I know. And you cannot tell me that they, God would call him an enemy. God calls those who do not receive Jesus, who reject Jesus, enemies, enemies of God. And so the enemy of God may be a super nice neighbor, but they've rejected Jesus. And so we're going to look at this. You're going to see this revealed in the, in the book of Acts in just a second. And then verse 38, but my righteous ones will live by faith. I take no pleasure in those who shrink back. Don't stop reading. But we, are, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So, here is an example of the verse that we, we read wrong if you deliberately keep on sinning. We'll, we'll see an example of that. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, it's another long chapter. I'd like to preach to all of it, but you'll, you'll get, that'd be another great assignment for it. If you say, I am so wild after God, I'll read two chapters this week. Then you could read Acts 13 as well. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are there, they're preaching, it says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, don't miss that, through whom? Jesus. Not through yourself, not through your good deeds, not through your wonderful anything, but through Jesus. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes and comes to the altar and kneels and ugly cries and confesses every single sin doesn't say that, does it? Through him, everyone who believes is set free from how much sin? Every sin. This is, this is our gospel. This is, this is incredible. This is such good news. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law. Don't. If somebody tries to take you back to the law, just say, why in the world would I want to do that? There's no justification under the law. 
I have a justification in Jesus. I made right before God something I could never get through the law. I could never get it through the law. You say, well, I don't know about that. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. And we've seen that in other places as well. So who, who gets justified? Everyone who believes. Why? Well, just, that's, just, that's just too good to be true. That's why it's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the good news. Well, the people heard this message, and they got excited. That's why I got to thinking, I wonder what would happen if we actually preached the gospel. They got excited. And they said to Paul and Barnabas, come back next week. Come back next Sabbath. We want to hear more. And they said, okay. This whole problem started out because at the end of a, a synagogue service, the, the, the leader of the synagogue got up and said, men, is there anybody here who would like to share something else? And Paul went, I would. And he shares, and then we get to that point, and they're so excited, they say, come back next week. And so they come back next week. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You know what they were calling the word of the Lord? The gospel. The word of the Lord. That again got me to thinking. What would happen if we preached the gospel? I mean the one that Paul and Barnabas preached. Not the one that you and I like to make up, the one Paul and Barnabas preached. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Yeah, envy, jealousy, whatever your translation says, exactly. Now, if two or three or four or a dozen would have came, they would have said, that's fine, but the whole city comes out. So they're thinking to themselves, I work my fanny off every week, and I can't hardly get anybody to come to church. And they come one week, and the whole city comes out to hear them. And they get filled with envy and jealousy because of the crowd. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. There's an example of sinning willfully and deliberately. These specific Jews, now by the way, lots of Jews came to know Jesus as their Savior. Peter preaches his debut Christian message and 3,000 Jews come to know Jesus as their Savior. And many priests believe, but a big chunk didn't. And this particular case, the key leaders reject it. And so what they've done is they've rejected the truth of Jesus. They chose to reject the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, being made right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. They received the knowledge of the truth, because that's what the verse actually said in Hebrews 10. They received the knowledge of the truth, and they rejected it. And the Bible says that if you reject that, there is no more sacrifice for sin coming. And the only thing that is coming is the fearful expectation of the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and consuming raging fire that will consume all the enemies of God. And so what's happened here is they came up to the bus stop, and most bus stops, there's buses that come every little bit and take you to the same place. They came up to the bus stop, and the gospel was proclaimed, and they looked at it, and they listened to it, and they got envious and jealous and didn't like the people who were preaching it and might not like people that were on the bus. And so they said, I'll just wait for the next bus to come. But there is no next bus to come. 
the only next bus that's coming is the expectation of fearful judgment, the wrath of God, and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. There is no next bus. So if you say, well, I don't, I don't want Jesus, I don't like the Jesus, I don't like the gospel, I've met some Christians that I don't like that well, which absolutely, I'm sorry, that's the stupidest reason not to go to heaven. You've met, i met some, some rude Christians. So what? I've met rude people in every, every area of life. You ever had a rude waiter or waitress? And then you say, I refuse to go to a restaurant ever again. You ever had a rude doctor? I'm never going to go to a doctor again. You ever had a rude clerk at, a, at your favorite store? I'm never going to go there again. We don't do that for anything because what Satan hates is the church. What Satan hates is the gospel. And so he wants you to get upset and aggravated. I'll just, I'll just leave. You know, I, I just won't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm mad. And that's what these Jews do. I'm mad. I don't want that. I'm jealous. And I'm waiting for the next bus. There isn't no next bus coming. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And so they rejected that. See, the message of salvation that Paul and Barnabas preached is the message that we should preach. Because it's, it's God's. It's God's message. And maybe, maybe the whole city would want to hear a message just beautiful. Maybe lots of people would like to hear, oh my goodness. But I always thought the gospel was this or that or the other. The gospel is the beautiful truth that there's no other avenue to heaven than Jesus. And if you believe upon him, your sins will be forgiven and forgotten. And he will make you perfect forever. Now, I'm very serious about this. Please hear me. If that message aggravates you, something's wrong. You've got what I would call religion in you. And now religion is not always a bad word. It gets used in the Bible once or twice in a positive way. What I mean by that is the, there's, there's such a thing called doctrines of men and doctrines of demons. And when you say, well, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to qualify this more, Pastor. John didn't. Peter didn't. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. So why do I? This is what the, the Bible says. The only qualification I will put on it is I do believe that belief in faith it has some depth to it. It's not just casually like, hey, do you believe? Oh, yeah, sure, I believe in him. Hey, man, let's go catch the game. You know, there's a, there is a, a true belief where you put your full weight in, upon it. And, and really, it's not a qualification. It's just understanding what belief means and what faith means. So when we know our sins are forgiven and our sinful acts and lawless deeds God remembers no more, and we understand that I am purified from all sin, I am purified from all unrighteousness, God has made me perfect forever, my goal is, is that you will begin to say, wow, I ought to live like that. See, I have something that, that I've done for years. I don't always do it well, don't always do it perfectly. But when a temptation comes, I will often say to myself, that's not who I am or what I'm about. Now, I don't always succeed at that. And, but that's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. And if I sin, I think, oh, you know, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. I don't want to be that. It cuts across the grain of salvation and the purity of God in me. I want to be different. And by the way, it's a lifelong process. You're very foolish to begin to compare yourself with someone else and say, well, I'm not as... It's, it's a journey. 
Just start moving forward today. Move forward today. And one day people will look at you and go, oh, they're so far ahead of me. I want to be like that. And hopefully they won't be discouraged. They'll want to go on the journey with you. And don't disqualify yourself. There's a guy in the Bible that God said was a man after his own heart. His name was David. If you will read the story of David's sin with Bathsheba, it is actually sickening, sickeningly vile. I'm serious about that. We can have gloss over. He, he, he sees some lady bathing. He sends people to get her, brings them to him, commits adultery with her because she's married, gets her pregnant, then decides he don't want to be held responsible for that baby or for a sin. So he then uh, tries to get Uriah, her husband, to come home and takes him off the battlefield. Uriah is so uh, righteous and, and committed to the, the army, the military, that he won't go enjoy the privileges of home while his brothers are out in battle. So he sleeps outside, sleeps on the steps. So that doesn't work. So then he takes Uriah and he tells the commanders, get in the thick of battle and then pull away and let Uriah be killed. I mean, when all the dust settles, you go, that is like super wicked. And guess what? God forgave him. And God used him. And, and if you check, if you ask any Hebrew, any Israelite, any Jewish person today who knows anything about their history and their Bible, and you ask them who was the greatest king of Israel, you know who they'll say? David. King David. Wow, how, how'd that happen? He, sh- he, should have, he should have done nothing. Well, we're going to close our service with one of his verses here in a little bit, and you'll understand that he had an insight in forgiveness. And it wasn't an excuse for him to sin, because you don't see him going doing that over and over and over again. You see that he, he has dealt with that issue in his heart and trusted for the forgiveness of God.